0: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Rivka Galchin, who has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on anti-vaccination movements. It's a review of two books, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumours Start and Why They Don't Go Away by Heidi Larson, and Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement by Jonathan Berman. Rivka Galchin qualified as a doctor in 2003. Her second novel, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, was published last year. Hello Rivka and thank you very much for joining me.
1: Hi Tom, thanks for having me.
0: So anti-vaccination movements might seem like a recent phenomenon with COVID and MMR 15 years ago, but actually anti vax movements or at least sentiments have existed as as long as there have been vaccines, haven't they? They go all the way back to the 18th century.
1: Absolutely. And that, and that was something that was wonderful in these books was to get a bit of that history, because of course, it feels like a kind of new kind of madness, but it's, it's actually a very old kind of madness. And, and of course, when you see it historically, it's more sympathetic. So one thing that was very interesting is, is uh, smallpox. Uh, as bad as COVID is, smallpox was so much worse and, and uh, really affecting almost a, at some point, I think the numbers were 10% of London's population. And those who were in dying from it were, were disfigured for life. So it was really a, quite an overwhelming disease. So you would think that when a cure basically, or a, a vaccine that would protect you from this would come around that everyone would sign up for it. And what was really interesting was to see that of course, politics always plays into how people feel about the body which is asking people to get vaccines or which is providing the vaccine. So that really colors everything. And one of the interesting things with the smallpox vaccine was that there was, on the one hand, a rather unprincipled resistance to the smallpox vaccine, which was that there were a lot of people making money off of some better and mostly not that good smallpox treatments of their own. So of course, that was one Block of resistance, but there was also a rather more sympathetic block of resistance, which came from the connected to the labor union movement. And and part of what was going on there was the bodies of the poor had been treated very badly for a long time. They were harvested sort of against without consent uh, to be used for anatomy studies, and this sort of feeling about how the poor were treated and how labour laws were or weren't sort of benefiting them naturally made people involved in that sort of feel that this, this smallpox vaccine was coming from the same people who hadn't been so friendly to them. So that was another core element of the resistance to the vaccine.
0: And presumably some of it, the, there was the understanding or lack of understanding how it worked. And of course, the people who did it, it's not clear that Edward Jenner, who developed it, although as you say in your piece, which I didn't realise, he wasn't the first person to do it. There was this farmer Benjamin Jesty who first who noticed this, that milkmaids didn't seem to get smallpox so because they caught cowpox from cows and was a much milder disease and so he deliberately infected his family with cowpox and they didn't get smallpox and then Edward Jenner this doctor in the 1790s followed that and he took some pus from a a sore of a is this right foot of a milkmaid infected with cowpox and then scraped it, made a, a cut in the little boy's arm, and put the pus into the into the cut, and then deliberately infected this child with smallpox to prove that this vaccination, which comes from the Latin word for cow, worked. And of course, in a sense, he was lucky that it did work, or he was confident enough that it did work. But that whole process, you can see why people might be resistant to to having to going through that process of having pus from another person's infections put into their own bodies.
1: It's horrifying, it's horrifying and, and uh, on the one hand, now we can wrap our brain around it and view it as intuitive, but of course, it, it wasn't so intuitive and it actually took quite a bit of insight to take that risk. And like you said, it could have not worked out at all. So it was it, you know it's interesting to look at the way that all sorts of both reasonable and unreasonable and magical ideas about what would or wouldn't protect you from smallpox, developed. And of course, you know, the early days of the vaccine were not perfect. So although getting the smallpox vaccine, which was made available free and then later became free and mandatory, while it sort of certainly dramatically improved your chances of not getting smallpox, it wasn't administered in the most hygienic ways. People reuse the same kind of lances and needles. Sometimes they would get other diseases from this not particularly hygienic way of, of doing it. And you can see how anecdote and anxiety would, from what inevitably would be some bad cases, would spread and contribute, contribute to this, this lack of faith in what sort of visually seems no more um, effective than... You know some sort of magic so it's sort of interesting to go to that beginning and see that it wasn't um it wasn't received with open arms despite being kind of a miraculous transformation in public health and it gained a lot of popularity actually interestingly uh napoleon napoleon uh thought it was a great idea. And he vaccinated his soldiers and it worked. So that was a, a bit of good press <laughs> coming from kind of a different uh, source of power and influence.
0: And of course, and eventually the I mean, the history it has an endpoint to the history of smallpox vaccination that there has been no case of smallpox in any person anywhere in the world since 1977, which is so it we're pretty much within in our lifetime, smallpox has been Eradicated. One of the very, very few diseases that that can be set off by by a vaccination program.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of uh, we we are we're so accustomed to reminding ourselves that science isn't necessarily a story of progress, but there you go. That is like a trajectory of absolute clear, kind of unarguable progress. It's kind of magic that that disease is isn't, or rather, not magic that that disease is not around anymore.
0: You mentioned one of the ones you talk about in your in your piece is the polio vaccine. And that there, um, there was quite a lot of hesitancy about that in, or scepticism, or I'm not sure what the right word would be, that in Nigeria in 2003 to four, that was seems to be closely t- tied to the political situation.
1: You know, one thing that, that is really interesting that comes out in the books is when you look at these, um, because, of course, it's quite different in each country, in each setting, kind of what it is that triggers this sort of... Um, coalescing of a kind of anti-vaccination movement. And again, and again, and again, and and of course the US would be included in this and the US has got such a much more powerful and dangerous anti-vaccine movement than the UK has. Although the UK has made its remarkable contributions that uh, again and again, there's a strong political divide there's usually literally an election going on in every single one of the, in almost every single one of the kind of case studies in the Larson book, there's a, a contentious political election going on uh, in Nigeria in one case in Colombia in another case. And we, we can add them um, in the US in a further case and it benefits their, their political figures who are really good at kind of getting at the helm and co-opting this anxiety around sort of the the other side and they sort of use the kind of natural community of, of people you know, either scared of or unsure of the vaccine and they, they they co-opt it and they and they're quite brilliant at it. So we saw they saw that Larson gives a really interesting case study in Nigeria and an interesting case study in Colombia. and none of these cases ended up being resolved because, scientists explained what was going on, or the government gave out an excellent fact sheet that never worked, because that wasn't sort of the source of the distrust. And the source of the distrust was more, I identify with one side, and I trust one side, and there's nothing the other side can say that will get into my trust system. So uh, in both cases, it was eventually actually Religious leaders and dialogue through religious leaders, and and in some some senses, sort of staging almost a show in which the the there's a way to both save face. The anti-vaccine side has a way to both save face and to reverse its position partially. Uh, is how the those cases ended up being resolved to the extent that they were resolved.
0: So what happened in Colombia?
1: Yeah, so it was it was a very interesting case. They were distributing a vaccine which protects against Gardasil, which protects against cervical cancer developing, which is a viral, virally triggered cancer. Um, but because this vaccine was being distributed, you know, specifically to women, young women, about 15 years of age, you know, exactly an um, age when there's just a lot of, in every culture, just a lot of ideas and anxiety around new and blooming sexuality and what it means and who's in charge of it and what's going on you know it's just a very um vulnerable moment for everyone involved not even just just the women themselves it's kind of a a moment that elicits a lot of anxiety for everyone in the culture the parents the kids and they were distributing the Gardasil vaccine which is a wonderful thing to be distributed And this anxiety started manifesting with there was a kind of spread of this of girls, you know, fainting and getting ill, you know, so so that eventually was sort of like 500 girls in the region sort of in the hospital. And they they said, like, you know, basically they're poisoning our girls. You know, this is the this is mediated by the vaccine. And and and, and, you know, it it was sort of a genuine phenomenon. It's not like these girls were you know, these girls weren't lying, they weren't faking it, but they looked into it, it was research, every sort of aspect of it was looked into. And it was not being caused by the vaccine. And it was sort of what is, you know, called the often sort of like a, you know, a mass psychogenic illness, where, which is a terrible kind of term, because it sounds like you're telling people sort of they're crazy, or they're hysterical, which has a terrible history. Um, and so it didn't go over very well when the government. And the president, who once again was sort of, it was like a moment of transition of power during an election, said, well, we've looked into it and, you know, it's mass psychogenic illness. So that was not well received by the community at all. It felt completely diminishing. And it took a, a lot of um, kind of community efforts from different kinds of leaders, not political leaders, to build back faith in the Gardasil vaccine.
0: And one other thing that can be done with that vaccine is to give it to boys as well, isn't it? Because they can't get cervical cancer, but they can certainly spread it. So the I and it and I don't know if, if you're giving it in some places they do give it to obviously if you're limited, if you're if you have limited quantities, you have to prioritize the girls. But
1: absolutely, it's sort of like birth control, like, why, why does it all fall on the on the, on the side of, of the women And and it seems like it may have made a real difference. Um, though, as you say, like again, there's the supply issue. It may have may have made a real psychological difference, and people often use the term psychological to mean not real. But of course, it's extremely real, and it may have made like a very real difference in the way that it was perceived.
0: And you you mentioned your piece as well that um, in Italy, where the so the anti-establishment Five Star movement who campaigned on a anti-compulsory vaccination, because there was this this law in Italy to say that children couldn't go to school unless they'd had the MMR and that the Movimento Cinque Stelle um, campaigned on a platform to abolish that. They went into coali- got came to power in coalition with the right wing Lega. And then the health minister, as you say in your piece, she sacked 30 doctors and scientists from an advisory board, but then did come to one of these compromises, didn't she? Because while she still said, I'm against compulsory vaccination in principle. However, there is a measles epidemic. So we're going to keep the law about compulsory and measles vaccination. So it's it's electorally useful until once you're in power, you sort of suddenly realise. Oh, hang on a minute! We've got a public health crisis. We do need to keep with this
1: exactly. So it seems like that's the, that's sort of the risk moment. And and it and I actually you know would take my hat off to the the movement that then lets go of the of the kind of rallying power of it because as we've sort of seen, there are lots of places where you know, it doesn't really matter how many people die if it sort of somehow helps ke- keep the team together. Um, they're going to keep messaging on it. But but as we see in these different examples, there are other examples where that rallying power is used and then kind of like in a face saving sort of way diffused and recognizes that there's a public health crisis recognizes that uh, people are dying or being damaged really for no reason.
0: And another important divide, which you mentioned in your piece between that, that... Berman makes is between the under-vaccinated and anti vaxxers and that the people there are the militants, campaigning, vocal spreaders of misinformation about vaccines. But that's actually quite a small group of people, and there's a much larger group who, for whatever reasons, some re- you know, and, and not always for bad reasons, are nervous about about getting vaccinated.
1: That was something in the Berman book that was really encouraging, and actually would be very interesting to hear um, his what he thinks about how COVID has altered or not altered that, because uh, these books, both were sort of the writing of them was finished pretty much before March of 2020. Um, So both of them have a kind of introduction talking about it, but uh, the Berman book made a, a sort of wonderful, mature point, a kind of adult point, which is that um, although there's something very kind of infuriating about the anti-vaxxers and they generate in people that desire to kind of like explain what is wrong with their thinking and point out, you know, what is wrong with their thinking, that's, you know, never going to go anywhere. And that's not a group that is ever going to be influenced. And in fact, he talks about all these studies where uh, resistance just generates a sort of doubling down emotionally. Uh, on the point but and then he says sort of one of the one of the problems is that we're so focused on the anti-vaxxers who are who at the time in in the U.S. were a relatively small group characterized by sort of wealth whiteness uh and femininity so that that was sort of who the the central population of the group was and it was very low in numbers and he said that the under vaccinated who are under vaccinated for all sorts of reasons are persuadable are often just sort of very, let's say busy. Often it's an a-, a matter of access, a matter of like uh, follow-up, a matter of chaos in their life in other places, and that this would be a much better sort of investment of kind of rhetorical and policy energy to focus on the under-vaccinated versus the, the anti-vaxxers who-, who in a sense um, their power is grown through direct reactive responses
0: and some of it presumably is to do with distrust of the state and maybe this is one reason why more people in the uk are vaccinated compared to the us that because the uk has the national health system and there is this the the state provides free health care to everybody whereas if you live in a country which would i guess include the us where the government takes no interest in your health you you're sick you you need to pay for you have to pay for a doctor for everything and then suddenly this government which has never given you has never offered you any any free healthcare before suddenly turns around and says we want to stick this needle in you because we suddenly care about your health and it's kind of well do you why do you suddenly care now why should i trust you now so there's a sense of i i mean it's is there a sense in which vaccine hesitancy is a a symptom of sort of decades of public health negligence that kind of why you've never cared about my health before? Why should I trust you now?
1: I agree with that 100% that sort of none of these problems were sudden that they sort of built, like you said, on kind of, you know, what is the social contract in that country and and how much trust is built between the the provider, which is in, in this, you know, for vaccines again, and again, basically the government and the population. So I think exactly, as you said, there's something that's sort of, you know, with, with some modifications and exceptions, I don't want to sort of blanket it, but there's something very kind of, you know, in the worst possible way, kind of frontier culture about the American medical system. It's just sort of get it, if you can get it, you know, scramble for it. It's, you know, and although I don't think people think in these terms, like, Oh, we spend the most money for, like the worst outcomes, that is available as well. And most people's experience of the medical system in the US, and even the medical insurance system is one of um, frustration and a sense of predation. Now, of course, there are many, many exceptions to that. But that I think is like part of what the, you know, most prevalent kind of contract around health is in the US. And I think you're right. I think that contributes to it. I think that's also why you see um, a country like Like Russia has very, very low vaccination rates, not because they don't have, they actually do have access to it. And then they have been providing it, but the trust is so, the trust is so low. It is sort of just such a strong, almost hundred year long tradition of saying, of saying we have an excellent five-year plan and nobody's starving. And it's, you know, so like, it's uh, of course there have been like ebbs and flows in that, but like you say, what we're really seeing is something that illuminates how functional the social contract is in these different countries.
0: And that trust can take a long time to, it can take a long time to build out that trust, but it can be lost very quickly because there was that case wasn't there. that when the CIA or oh, I don't know, maybe it wasn't the, another agencies in the army, US Army were looking for Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, and they set up a Fake. They thought they'd found him in a butter and they set up a fake hepatitis vaccination program, hoping to, to, hoping to get the DNA from Bin Laden's children as a way of confirming that his family was there. And the the Lancet had a story about this in 2014, and they, you know, as they say, release of this information has had a disastrous effect on worldwide eradication of infectious diseases, especially polio. And then Obama had to say, "We promise we'll never do that again." But the idea that you have a covert military operation closing as a a vaccination program and it was
1: yeah like it's just kind of um it's just an amazing kind of own goal because it just confirms all of the worst fears and so then all these things that aren't true and all these conspiracy theories just start to seem extremely plausible and it's really hard to discount them out of hand because of course you can't have a sort of man on the street argument about whether the hepatitis C clinic is, you know, is like for real, is a public health measure, is sort of a bogus military move. There's no way to resolve that question. So it just, as you said, in uh, some of these case studies as well in, in Nigeria, for example, the sense that there are parts of the political system that are sort of in the pocket of the West or advocating for the West or against, you know, Or against the west and that it gets framed that way um naturally gets in the way of anything the world health organization wants to do because even though it's the world health organization it's of course perceived um as a dominant western kind of organization
0: this is the lrb podcast if you enjoy listening to it you'll probably enjoy reading the london review of books to subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen.
1: That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below.
0: And something else which you write about in your piece, which I certainly never thought about before, is the, the role of what you, or maybe it's in one of the books, calls Big Supplement. The idea that sort of a lot of anti-vax propaganda comes from this yeah what you call big supplements could you, could you talk a bit about about that
1: yeah absolutely i actually think this is one of the kind of under noticed aspects of of what's going on so jonathan berman comes up with this term because of course we're we're familiar with the concept of big pharma and pharmaceutical industry is kind of influencing policy to make their own kind of bottom line look better. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. And then there are also ways in which people use that argument in a, in a fallacious way where it sort of doesn't apply or, or it's sort of adjacent to the problem of whether like a certain medical protocol um, or a certain drug is effective. It's kind of adjacent problem rather than something that says actually you know, this kind of antiviral doesn't work. No, that's not really the issue. So um, we're, we're kind of used to that argument from big pharma. And the point that Jonathan Berman makes, which is really strong, is how much of the, these anti-vaccine groups, how many of them are funded by this weird gap in the FDA. So there was like a moment where the FDA decided that kind of nutritional supplements were a special thing. They weren't drugs and they weren't food and they could basically say whatever they wanted. They could say, this is sort of going to make you youthful. This is going to give you energy. This is going to cure cancer. You you can make any claim. It was just not regulated. It was this weird unregulated pocket. And once they generated this sort of strange unregulated pocket, the industry... Went from being a relatively kind of, I'm, I'm blanking on the numbers, but something like a sort of $2 billion industry to a $400 billion industry. So that's not that surprising if suddenly there's a hole in the market where you get to make claims that don't have to be substantiated or backed up by evidence.
0: So, so the FDA regulates f- food and drugs, hence the name, the Food and Drug Administration. But these sub these vitamin supplements or whatever, these don't fall under either category. So they're not they can be sold for ingestion without being regulated at all as either food or drugs. So the FDA just has, is that right? that sounds I mean, it seems astonishing. it's
1: basically like that. And they, they're basically, um, they're basically liberated from the obligation to back up their claims. So if you have a drug, you you have to have your sort of some body of evidence (laughs) sort of um, that backs up any claims that will be made on the drug. And in this area of the supplement, there was legislation passed, like you said, kind of liberating them from that. And so, uh, you know, if you want to make a a good faith argument, you would say they sort of identified this kind of middle space, which, which didn't fall under either rubric, or you can make a bad faith argument which is probably more true, and say they were sort of opening up this area and and it really exploded. Um, And so, so many things, like I myself am like really drawn to something that's described as natural or organic. And I myself feel sort of really open to the idea that, I don't know, echinacea is maybe gonna get rid of my cold and maybe it is, or maybe it isn't. But because of this incredibly lucrative industry which benefits from every possible way of kind of knocking down quote unquote traditional medicine, right? Cause that's their market share. They're kind of going for the same area. So, so there are all sorts of appropriate ways to kind of knock down the authority of quote unquote traditional medicine. But of course these, there's also bad faith profit motivated attempts to knock down traditional medicine and vaccines fall into that world.
0: And presumably in a, society country in a place where you have to pay to go to the doctor where those drugs are often very expensive if there is some alternative that's cheaper which promises more you can see well, opt- optimism if nothing else would encourage people to take it either you have to spend this many dollars going to see the doctor and then you have to pay this much for the for this drug which has been proven to work or try this this supplement which
1: Absolutely, it's very seductive, and of course, there's something legitimate to the idea that mo- you know most a lot of kind of workaday problems, whether it's like your knees hurt or obesity or whatever it is. There's there's there are kind of natural cures for that, but they're sort of harder and they are cheap, and no one's marketing them to you. Um, you know, there aren't that many people marketing, a, you know, a, a, a diet rich in fruit and vegetables and and grains. There's some people, but. Um, I just, you know, again and again, I'll have a friend who'll tell me that they're taking blue algae for weight loss or whatever it might be. And you kind of see doctors deal all, all the time with toxicity because people feel like when they're buying a natural product and that word, of course, is basically meaningless. That they can't hurt themselves. Like you know, arsenic is a natural product. You know, these are all natural products. So,
0: there was a health food store somewhere. Which I mean, I think that was some put this on social media. They were selling apricot kernels as a as a supplement, and of course, they're full of cyanide. And if you eat enough apricot kernels, you're going to die of cyanide poisoning. But it's yeah,
1: it's natural. It's it's absolutely natural. So it's not to say that there isn't value in in thinking in those terms. Thinking in terms of kind of outside of the box, but just that it that that impulse, which uh could be a positive one, gets co opted by people making money off of it.
0: So this this question of how do you how do you persuade the vaccine hesitant? Because one of those things to countries that have imposed mandates for coming back to Italy again, that now has this quite strong one that you now have to get at the, these levels of green pass is now the super green pass that you can get if you're fully vaccinated which means three doses or your second dose less than four months ago and this means you can go to restaurants and into hotels and you can and on public transport and if you don't have one of these your your ability to interact in society is, is severely restricted but one way you can get around it you can get around being vaccinated is if you have recovered from the illness and there are stories that there's in the some guy who was trying to buy an infected mask online in order to infect himself with covid so that he could get and then other people who who are all part there's a sort of a, an anti-vax what's whatsapp group and people giving each other their health insurance cards so that an infected person can go and get tested pretending to be someone else so this other person can then say pretend that they've had a positive test so that they don't have to get the vaccine and this sort of willingness to put yourself at risk of a potentially deadly illness in the face of all the evidence and uh, and 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 some of it seems to be i wonder how much of it's resistance idea of being told you have to do it and that you say to people the government's making me do this and i'm not going to do it because they're trying to force me
1: one thing that was interesting to see in in both books because both of them are by people who have a kind of really front row view of 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 how these vaccine distribution efforts go um Larson has a particularly kind of international spec- perspective and Berman um, is based in Arkansas, which is not sort of a state with a particularly high uptake um, of, of the vaccine. And what is interesting is it seems like the question of a mandate is an open one because it is a, uh, it does coalesce the resistance. There's something about a mandate that Can kind of double down or strengthen or give a rallying point for for a group, but it's just totally unclear. It's totally unclear what to do because, of course, um, you know we have all sorts of mandates: no shoes, no shirt, no service for every restaurant. You know, and then the you know you know you can't defecate in public on the sidewalk. I mean, there's just like all sorts of public health mandates all over the place. So the, the the you know, it just seems like a really different, difficult, rhetorical problem on top of everything else.
0: Yeah, but it does seem different. I I can see the idea. I mean, the idea of holding someone down and sticking a needle in them against their will, somehow seems a a different level of which is not what any of the mandates are doing. But that would be the ultimate line. You say this is a compulsory vaccine. And if you refuse to have it, we will strap you down and give it to you anyway. And that is surely going too far. You can't that that's some, that's crossing a line, which
1: absolutely. And I think to myself, I often think to myself, I think, um, okay, like, you know, what if I was sort of living in a country, perhaps my own, with a president and a political party in power that I absolutely had no faith in. You know, I it's it sort of it sort of would change everything. And, and 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 even I often think about that in terms of homeschooling you know, uh, homeschoolers in this country have a reputation for being kind of crazy, like afraid that their children will, will be told that it's okay to be gay, like that, that seems to be like a motivation, right? So that it's not very sympathetic. But I think to myself, okay, well, you know, it's very easy for me to imagine sort of being in a country where the public school system would be anathema to me to put my children in there. So I, I agree, it's sort of, I almost think like the mandate like in Italy, which is an effective, um, in, in effect, a mandate because because you're cut out of society if you don't sort of comply, uh, is just sort of a raw use of power. I happen to think it's a nice use of power, but uh, but at the end of the day, it it uh, it seems very problematic.
0: Yeah, it's a question of persuasion rather than coercion. I mean, there isn't a straightforward line between persuasion and coercion.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. They did some studies about sort of about persuasion, sort of like a. Uh, different text messages or, or notes and which ones were most likely to get someone to go get vaccinated. And the ones that were like jokes or hostile or sort of suggesting you, you know, you're putting your kind of neighbors at risk. Those were not very effective. The most effective ones were like, your vaccine is waiting for you. Just the idea that it's like this service or privilege or luxury, which of course, you know, at the end of the day it is. That was something that people responded to, whereas they really didn't respond to you're behaving badly, you're, you're a bad social actor, or those those were very ineffective.
0: Actually the same kinds of techniques that are used for marketing anything.
1: Exactly, yeah. You,
0: know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't try and sell sell a couch by you know aggressively terribly. your neighbors have got nowhere to sit when they come around if you're a bad person buy a new couch That's gonna...
1: everyone is laughing at your couchless apartment you know it just doesn't really work
0: Rivka Galchen thank you very much thank you Tom you can read Rivka Galchen's piece in the current issue of the LLB along with Wolfgang Strake on technopopulism Jonathan Parry on centuries of corruption and Terry Eagleton on Malcolm Bull's optimism The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.